I'm Jesse Lubinsky. I'm Donnie Piercy. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Heil, hosts of the Partial Credit Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Clavon C. Harris. She is the author of the book, Sub, Inside the Notorious School District of Philadelphia. You will hear us talk about her experiences as a substitute teacher, take a look at concerns in the schools, and talk about the future of the Philadelphia schools. What an awesome conversation. What an awesome book. You're going to love this discussion. Thanks for listening. And then, by the way, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmiletto.com slash reviews, and you left a review for the podcast. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. You're awesome. Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code. Capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Writer and advocate for fair and equal education, Clavon C. Harris earned an MFA in cinema TV screenwriting from the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts and a BA in English Literature from Swarthmore College where students are taught they have the ability to change the world. Harris lives and writes in the Philadelphia area where she specializes in messaging strategy, digital content creation, and script development. She is also a member of the Writers Guild of America. Her first book is the award-winning collection of essays, Year of Trial, Year of Grace, A Catholic Search for Faith. Clavon left a a career of writing for television behind and, and returned to Philadelphia where she planned to pursue a career in teaching. Easing in as a substitute, she was confronted by disruption and violence that undermined both the learning environment and her aspirations. Still hoping to contribute, she wrote an insightful first-hand account of the conditions and real-life challenges teachers and students face on a daily basis. Today, we are focused on her book, Sub, Inside the Notorious School District of Philadelphia. Clevon, thanks so much for talking with me today, and say hi to everyone. Hello, how are you? And thank you so much for having me on your show, Steve, and I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you here, and uh, i got to ask you this. Uh, could you talk just a little bit about your time writing for television? I mean, what inspired you to pursue this career? Um, I always loved television. I think from the time I was tall enough to change the channel, um, you know, before remotes, I, I just loved television. And um, After I went away to college, though, I had sort of been away from TV for about four years. You know, I saw it sporadically, but not the way I had watched before. And when I came back, I think I looked at it a little more critically. 
And I was disappointed by what I was seeing, especially in terms of the representation of people of color and women. And I thought, well, maybe maybe I could help out with this. I, I, I'm a writer. I like to write. Maybe I can go out there and, and contribute. And I applied to the School of Cinematic Arts. And people told me, well, you know, you probably won't get in. It's very competitive. And lo and behold, I got in. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going. And I went. Um, I studied television and, and cinema. And then after that, I was fortunate enough to get an internship on a show called 704 Hauser uh, with Norman Lear and learned from him and worked on a few other shows, Living Single, um, For Your Love, uh, did some freelances for Star Trek Voyager and Soul Food, the series. And wh what I discovered is that I, I leaned more toward the, the one hour format than half hour, but most of my experience was in half hour. And as I tried to switch over to one hour at the time, it was very, very difficult because then the, the lines were very clearly drawn. This is half hour, this is one hour, and those writers are, are not the same. But in addition to that, I discovered that when I would go into meeting, someone would read my script and tell my agent they wanted to meet me. And I would go in to meet them and they would be surprised that I was a woman. They would be surprised that I was a black woman uh, in particular. And oftentimes they would say, well, you know, we liked her. We like her writing. Uh, we don't have any black dramas, so we don't really know what to do with her. Or, you know, I had executive producers tell me straight out they were looking for or they were expecting a tall Nordic guy. And um, because they thought my name was Clay Von Harris, um, not Clay Von Harris. So. Um, it, it got to be a little bit frustrating and my career slowed down and I felt like I wasn't really doing anything productive with the education that I had. And I decided, you know, well, maybe I should think about teaching because I had always had an interest in that and I thought I could make a contribution that way. That's cool. Uh, and just know that's not cool that they, that all these judgments about your name or when they actually met you. Oh my gosh, man. That, that, yeah. uh, that's Wild. And, and I got to say this, first of all, though, because you, you said a few things I got to make sure I mentioned because I'm a huge Star Trek fan. So I, I think that's <laughs> cool. And I, I've watched some of the I've watched all the different uh, series and things like that. And so I've watched Voyager as well. And that's cool to know that I'm meeting someone who's, who wrote some scripts for um, Voyager, which I think is awesome. And then you also slid in there real fast. You you worked with Norman Lear. I did. Oh, that's I cool. did. That what was, was what was that like? You got to tell a little more about that, all right? That was amazing. That was amazing. I mean, he is an icon. You know, um, it was just such a wonderful experience, and for that to be really my first professional experience, I was a Writers Guild intern on Seven Hundred Four Hauser, which was not one of his famous shows, um, and it didn't stay on long. It was like right as the CBS regime was changing and the last person that ran the network had picked up the show and the new person canceled the show. But just to have the opportunity to be in a room and watch him work and just to experience not just his talent, but his humility as a writer, that he would be willing to listen to me and my thoughts and my comments. And I was right out of school and had no experience and you know, he treated me with, with respect and decency, and I will always, always appreciate and love him for that. 
That is so cool. Thanks for expanding upon that a little bit. That's awesome. That's uh, really cool. Sure. What an awesome experience. I, all right. So today we're focused on your book, Sub, Inside the Notorious School District of Philadelphia. And, you know, one of the things that happens here is that we got, we got a whole bunch. I could have, I could have spent this entire interview on literally the first, the opening of your book. <laughs> All right. And, <laughs> and uh, I struggled because I'm like, no, there's so much more here. And, but, uh, you know, cause just being a substitute and then the location and then your own history associated with the, the area itself um, makes it um, that much more powerful. And uh, so let's, let's do this. I mean, cause one of the things that uh, um, happened is you end up putting aside your, your writing career so that you can become a teacher and in order to become a teacher, you have to become a substitute teacher. And, and so, first of all, i got to ask you this. And uh, what was making you think that teaching is really the thing for you? You know, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to work in a summer program for students as a teaching assistant. And the, it was called Adventures in Math and Science. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was geared towards students who had um, who weren't achieving up to their their level of ability, and they were middle school students. So we had a, a very diverse group of, of of kids, and I had a great time. I worked with teachers from the college, and I worked with. Um, people who were majoring in education and just about to go off into the world to become teachers. And um, I just, I just loved it. I had such a good time. I did it two summers in a row. And actually I had decided that I was going to become a writer and I stopped for a minute and really considered switching my major to education. And then, you know, in the end decided to stay with writing but I always had a soft spot for teaching and thought in the back of my head, well, maybe one day I'll have an opportunity to teach who, who knows. <clears throat> so that's why, that's why this actually, you know, it, it may seem a little bit random, but it's not because it was always there. It was always in my heart. And I always loved school and, and had a great time at school and just, you know, being in educational settings, the people that you meet, the teachers, the professors, you know, everything they're they're always really really smart people and, and great people. So what happened is as my career started to kind of wane and I was sitting around not being productive, I thought, well, you know, this is, this is crazy. I have all this education. I have a master's degree. I, I could be teaching and, and being productive and, and perhaps giving something back to society. And so I decided that, well, maybe I should try teaching. And I applied to be a teacher in California where you can um, attain emergency credentials um, by taking the, the CBEST test and, and passing that and they would give you a classroom. And then it hit me, well, if I'm going to teach, do I really need to stay in California? I could go back to Philadelphia where I'm from, be near my family and my friends from here. And I should just do that. And so the week before they actually gave me a classroom assignment in Los Angeles. I think it was about a week before I had already decided to leave and I was packing up and they called. And so I moved home, but, but, I, and you know, I didn't check on this beforehand when I got to, you know, back to Philadelphia, I discovered that, that 
it didn't work the same way that they you couldn't get emergency credentials in Pennsylvania. You had to go back and get fully certified. And that would be a two year program. So I couldn't teach. But what they said is, hey, we need substitute teachers right now. We can have you out there working on Monday um, or as soon as you complete all of this paperwork and get all these um, and fill out all these forms. That's awesome. I, and it's just interesting because of the two different locations um, on the, across the country. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> they're focused on that. Uh, one, they're all set to put you in the classroom. The other one, uh, no, 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 time out. We got to get you through some classes and things like this. And and then we'll see if you'll be a substitute or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I, it, it's, it's a little strange because it, there was very little training to be a substitute teacher. There was a five-hour class and that included a lunch break so i i was completely unprepared for what i encountered and you're sure that uh, that's that five hour sub training with the lunch didn't help you i mean it <laughs> i'm ready yes to take no no i'm not <laughs> um. yeah you know it's it's interesting because you were able to get your emergency credentials and then you would have had a week, at least a week of training in Los Angeles before you started with your classroom assignment. Here, it was five hours of training and then they just kind of threw you out there and um, it was crazy. That's something else. I, I know when I was a substitute, it was something similar where you just kind of, they put you in a room with all these other people or, that you don't know and... Um, I don't remember how long the training was, but you, you did this training and away you went and they sent you to the school where you're going. Um, or they told you, just wait for the phone call. That was a part of your book that I thought was <laughs> yeah. hilarious. You're talking about how annoying that phone call was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Starting at six o'clock in the morning, you get a phone call from the, the computer telling you, um, oh, we have an assignment for you, you know, and then you have to tell them whether or not you accept, you know, you have to put your pin code in and, you know, press one for no, press two for yes. And then they would just, you know, give you the information and you would go. And if you said no, then they would call you again 10 minutes later. And then I figured out that I could call into the system and listen to the different assignments that they had available and start to choose them, which it wasn't so much the choosing, it was just the knowing what time I needed to be up to get to the assignment because, you know, a school could be an hour away from where I lived or it could be around the corner. And I just, I just wanted to have, just be a little bit more prepared. So it was easier once I started calling in. I can only imagine because that's once you figured that out and then, you know, then you get to decide whether you accept it or not. And that's one of those things. And just as a note, uh, so there was electricity when I was teaching, but uh, <laughs> but it was a human. I'm sure. <laughs> there was a human on the other end of it. They Not called a, you? Yes, oh, they called nice. you and said, uh, hey, we need substitutes at uh, the following school. And, you know, once you did that a couple of times, then what happened was the secretary or whoever was in charge of those different schools would reach out, would say to you before you left that day, you know, the subs they didn't like, they wouldn't do that to. <laughs> the other one, yeah. if they thought you were doing an okay job, they'd reach out to you and they'd say, hey, I've got a couple of things coming up. Let's let's see if we can't schedule this. And um, so, but it, it's interesting when it was a human being versus the computer because, yeah, today you got all these computers that, uh, you know, if you don't accept it, they may call you about 15 times depending on how big that system is. <laughs> yeah, they actually, they actually don't do that anymore. Everything is online now. So, um, 
you, you don't, well, actually that's not totally true. Um, if they're calling you, you know, it's a problem. So, you know, they're calling because somebody called out at the very last minute and they're desperate. Like after the Eagles won the Super Bowl, um, they, they were calling everyone because so many people, so many teachers called out the, on that, that Monday. So, but most of it is, is online now and you, you would accept or decline there. And so you didn't, you, you could get the phone calls, but I opted out of the phone calls because that was just crazy. Smart, smart. That's funny too. After the Eagles won the Super Bowl, I can imagine it's like all these people are going, I'm not going in today. What are we? What are yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. The, uh, you know, I got to ask you this. So when you started substituting, was there ever a time that you said, what have I done to myself? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Early on, I would say every day, every day that I was out in the schools, I'm like, why, why am I doing this? What am I doing? You know, not to mention and having all of my family and friends ask me, what are you doing? Why would you stop trying to, you know, be a writer in, in, in Los Angeles and quit that and come back here to be a substitute teacher? Are you crazy? Um, so yeah, I was getting that question a lot, you know, not just from me, but you know, from everyone around me as well. I think that's fun. Sorry. I, I don't mean to, to laugh or anything, but I can, I could just see the family part of it. What, what, what are you doing? <laughs> so interesting. Uh, all right. So during your first sub job, you were to work at a school that you would have attended as a kid if you had not been sent to a private Catholic school. What thoughts did you have of the school when you were a kid? And what was it like when you were there as an adult? This was a high school. And um, when I was a kid, the, it, it had the reputation of being a pretty rough school. It was huge. Thousands of kids went there. Um, I, it was just never a consideration for me because I just, I, I, I knew it wasn't a school that I wanted to attend. I didn't know what it was like on the inside, but I would hear stories um, although at the same time, I met people that went to that school who were really cool, very nice, and they became friends of mine. But I, I didn't want to go there. Um, and if I had gone to public school, I would have gone to, I actually applied to um, a school called Girls High, which is a magnet school um, that had a, a pretty good reputation. And I, I did get in, but I also got into um, the school that I applied to, Sicilian Academy. And I got into that. And so that's, that's where I went. Um, when I actually had the chance to go visit and I was pretty excited about seeing inside because, you know, I thought, okay, well, this is where I, I, I could have gone um, if things were, were different in my life. Um, so I, I went in and the first thing was that the school was actually pretty beautiful. I mean, architecturally, it was really nice. There were mosaics on the wall, there were tiles on the floor. <clears throat> It was really, it was really well made. You know, it was starting to look a little run down at that point, but not super run down. So when I walked in, I was first pleasantly surprised. I was shocked by the number of students that were pouring toward the door to go in because I had always gone to smaller schools. But, um, you know, I thought the school itself was pretty nice. And when I got up to the front desk, they were like, oh, okay, you, you should go down to room such and such. Someone will be down later with um, your class list and information. Let's go. And that was really about it. I didn't get any more information. And it was a rough, rough day. What I found is that um, a large percentage of the students were bigger than me. And they didn't necessarily want to 
hear from me, (laughs) you know, and they felt that it was okay to speak over me while I was trying to talk to them. Uh, At one point, they shoved two classes together. They didn't warn me because both of their teachers were out. So I had this class with just tons and tons of, of students and none of, well, a very small percentage of them were actually listening to me and trying to do the assignment that I had for them. So, and uh, I had a class where a fight broke out. I had one class where these kids got up and walked out and then they came back and they were disrupting. We were trying to watch Othello and we had a worksheet to go with it, but they came back in and made so much noise and, and disturbed the other students that we wound up having to stop the, the video. Um, I called for help. It took a long time for someone to come. And when they came, they had sat back down in their seats and they were just yelling back and forth to each other across the room. And they looked at me like, well, what's the problem? And, and I was like, well, these kids walked out and then, you know, they came back in and they're disrupting and they're not letting the other kids watch the, the movie and they're giving me a hard time. And they were like, oh, well, call the school police next time. And, and they left. And after that, one of the kids just kept following me around the room And, you know, just, well, why did you call the office on me? Why did you report me? You know, I I didn't appreciate that. You know, (laughs) it's just, you know, and I realized later on that I think he was kind of threatening me. Um, But I didn't get it at the time. I just was very uncomfortable. I would walk across the room and he would grab his desk and drag his desk across the room behind me. And you know, start talking to me again. It was just, it was just very weird. I was, I was very happy to leave at the end of the day. And I decided that I would never go back and sub at that school. They invited me to come back, but, um, and I almost left. I had one more class to go and I I was ready to leave because there was no help forthcoming. You know, they said that people would be by to give me classless and things like that. They didn't. Um, I, I was just like, this, this is insane. And then once I said that I was going to leave, then I got some support. You know, then the coordinator came by to see how I was doing and and gave me class list. The principal came to the room and actually checked off, you know, who was in the room and whatever and made sure that I had 15 minutes to go try to grab something to eat. It was just it was crazy. And I, I never went back to the school, even though I was tempted when I went back out the second time. But um, I didn't go back. I just felt like I shouldn't. But I did wind up interviewing one of the teachers that was working at the school and he gave me a a lot of insight into what was going on and he did not feel that it was it was better it was it had been designated a turnaround school but he said he didn't feel that it was turning around at all and and that in itself is sad and uh the uh, and what you experience is something that because you know as substitute having been a substitute you know you're You could be in that school and another school and another school, and uh, you'd hope that it would just work where you could just come in, do whatever you need to do to help them get on with their lessons while the person's out, and then move on. And instead, you're having to deal with all this other craziness um, yeah. that's that's in and around kid behavior, but also adult behavior, which is interesting because they're promising things and then not coming through until you're like, ah, I'm just done, you know, <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> then suddenly like, whoa, wait, no way. So that's, that's fascinating. I, I mean, one of the things that you say during an early section of your book, you note, new subs are practically guaranteed daily work as long as they are willing to teach outside of their comfort zone. Uh, what do you mean? And what does this mean as far as who is teaching the kids in the school district of Philadelphia? When I 
first applied to be a substitute teacher and I went in for my five hour orientation and brought all my paperwork. Um, someone spoke to me for about 10 minutes and she said, okay, what do you want to teach? And I said, high school English. I'm a writer. I love English. It just made sense to me. And she said, yeah, we got a lot of English. How about math? And I looked at her like she was crazy. I was like, no, I don't want to teach math. You know, it's like, I, I, hated math when I was in school, you know, I managed to get through it. I had to work really, really hard um, in, in order to get a B in math. Um, so it didn't make sense that they would want me to teach someone else, obviously would be much more qualified. So then she said, well, what else? I was like, what else? What do you mean? And she said, well, how about art? Can you teach art? Oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. I can teach art. What about elementary? And, and I thought, I was like, well, aren't there specific requirements to teach smaller kids, uh, you know, but she's like, okay, I'm just going to put you down for elementary. And she said, look, she said, the more you put down for, the more you'll get called for. And, but what she didn't say is you can call in and choose your assignments, you know? So if you call in and you listen to the available assignments, you can decide which ones you want, but you can work, especially at that time, you can work every day. You know, if you're willing to go to a school that may not be the best school or to go to a school that may have a reputation for being um, a, a little bit dangerous or, you know, where the students are a little bit out of control or where there's not a lot of administrative support. Um, if you're willing to teach whatever they throw at you, because a lot of times they don't leave assignments anyway for the kids. So you might go to substitute for a math teacher and they may give you puzzles to to do with the kids so if you want to work every day as a sub you can and what that says about the school district of philadelphia and i think it says a lot about a lot of large urban school districts across the u.s you know they are known uh statistically to have a much higher percentage of new teachers and a much higher percentage of substitute teachers so even though you have a lot of dedicated, hardworking, really determined teachers in the school district of Philadelphia, you also have a high number of, of teachers who don't always show up to work and who are frustrated by conditions and who are overwhelmed with their circumstances. So that, that makes it a little bit tough. Um, I read a, a statistic of, a while ago that said at the end of every year, 25% of teachers in the school district of Philadelphia either transfer to another school or transfer out of the district altogether. That's 25% every year. Um, I read a, another stat that said that um, only 61%, I think this might have been for 2019, only 61% of teachers were present for 95% of their classes. That's a pretty high absentee rate. It sure is. It's, uh, that's kind of where I was going was to, I'm glad you took us there. Cause it's, you know, to have that many people out, you know, it's one thing when your team wins the Super Bowl and you don't want to go to work. <laughs> it's a whole nother thing when, uh, this is just something the school's having to deal with is this constant absenteeism. Yeah, it's a it's a chronic problem at one of the schools where I sub. There, there was one school that I talk about in. Um, well, I first visited it um, in 2001 when I first went out. And so it's in in the first 
part of the book. And then I went back again uh, in the, like in part three, when I went back out to sub in from 2017 to 2019. And I subbed at that school off and on all year long with one class because the teachers were going in and out. You know, initially they had one teacher, a new teacher who was overwhelmed and the class was out of control. They decided they were going to split the class and hire another teacher for the other part of the class. But before the new teacher got there, the the new regular teacher, the old new teacher went out on leave. And so when the new teacher got there, she got the whole class, which was out of control and I think couldn't deal with it. And then she went out on a leave and then they gave, they did split the class and they gave it to two substitutes and I was one of them. So I had about 18 kids in my class, which is, is not that bad, but a couple of those students were really, really difficult to manage. And even though I was making progress, when the first teacher came back, she didn't like the, cl- the way the class had been split, complained to the principal, and they re-split the classes after I had started to establish relationships with the kids and their parents. And then I got a kid in the class that I just, it, I, I just, there was nothing I could do. I could not manage this kid. You know, I just didn't have the skill set to manage the kid. And, and the other teacher didn't have the skill set. She didn't want him in her, her class. And he was known around the school. And this was third grade. He was known around the school to be a difficult child to work with. And, um, you know, it, it caused, you know, eventually the regular teacher came back that had the, that was supposed to deal with that second half of the class. I was there for two months. She came back. Um, she went out for a couple of days. I came back. Um, she, she came back and then she was there for a while. And then she went out again and I came back for another two months uh, or three months. And then she came back again. She was there for a while and then she left. They asked me to come back, but I couldn't. So they had another substitute teacher and then they called me again and said, you know, they wanted me to come back. They wanted to put him somewhere in a, in a different class where the teacher was out. And I came back and finished up the school year with them. But on that hall where I was working, at least four of the teachers were out on some type of a long-term basis. I mean, for months, <laughs> months at a time. And I, I had a chance to sit down. You know, I, I, I'll be honest. I was judging that teacher that I was subbing for. I was, I was judging her. I was, cause I was like, you know, what are you doing? This is your job. Where are you? I didn't say that to her, but that's what I was thinking. And when she came back at one point, we did a transition where I stayed in the class with her the first day that she was back because I didn't want to just disappear on the kids again, because that's how we did it the first time. And when I came back, I found that I had to take time to reestablish my relationship with the kids because they were upset because I was just gone. And so we warned them that she was coming back. I was there that day that, that she was coming and um, I stayed through that entire day and I had a chance to have lunch with her. And what I found is that she was just, she was a nice lady and she was a, she was a good teacher because I, I observed her. She was a much better teacher than I was and had much more experience than, than I had and was able to really break down the learning into simple concepts for the kids, um, something that I kind of struggled with. And you know, when we had a chance to sit down and talk, she confided in me that it was this one kid in the classroom that she just couldn't really deal with. She said she could deal with him, but she couldn't. She said that just the thought of him coming back, and he was absent the day that she returned. She said just the thought of dealing with him just really, it was just upsetting to her. And that's, and I I honestly think that's why she kept 
going out is because it was just such a struggle for her to try to manage this one child who had an emotional and behavioral problem. That's, that's very rough. If, if you just one child is causing you to say, I, I got to leave for a while and you're out for days. I mean, that's just, uh, but I could see the reality. I could see that happening so much. I, this, uh, thanks for talking about that. I mean, you know, one of the things that I want to use this to segue into is that one of the things that you talk about in your book are schools that you subbed in uh, and uh, their test scores and and where they are today in the same place. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to use this kind of segue into the leadership also. But can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what observations you learned from, from that? I mean, when comparing the schools from the past and looking at them now? You know, so the first time I went out, the in the first part of the book, the first part is just stories from the room. It's just my experiences on a daily basis going into to the different assignments, you know, from one day assignments to three week assignments or, or whatever. And um, I kept track of what was going on with the schools. Uh, you know, I found out that the Philadelphia Inquirer put out something called the report card on the schools where it would list the, the scores, the PSSA scores, the standardized test scores for all of the different schools in, in Philadelphia. And so I was interested in how the schools where I had subbed had done. And so I, I looked that up and I started keeping track and I would check every year. And then when the inquirer stopped doing their report card on the schools, cause it was just a massive project. I would just go to the education website, the PA education website, and I would look up the scores for the different schools. And I was watching to see if they were getting better. So from 2001 through 2000 through 2019, I, I followed the scores for the first 15 schools that I, I visited. And while some of the schools closed, some of the schools became charters, I noticed that the, the, the test scores did improve, but they improved very slowly and just a little bit at a time. They weren't making these great leaps that in achievement that that's needed because when the first time I looked at the scores, you had 85 to 90% of the kids in a grade that was tested that were scoring below basic. So if you have 85% of the kids in third grade scoring below basic, that tells you there is a huge problem, a huge problem. So, you know, I, I just tried to, to pay attention to that. And while it's, it's better now, you still have 85% of the students who are scoring into basic or below basic. And that that's progress because fewer schools in the below are in the below basic category, but a lot of those schools have only moved up to the basic category when really what you want is for the, the students to be testing into proficient and advanced. And 85, 75 to 80% of the students in Philadelphia are not doing work on grade level. And that's, that's now. That's rough. Cause that's uh, at some point they're going to be in the, they're going to be in society as a whole. And yes, <laughs> yes. It's, it's setting them up um, for failure. You know, it's, it's, it's setting them up for failure. I don't, I don't know if you want to go down this road or talk about this. Yeah, but... Let's go right down this road now. Let's go ahead. And do okay. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I honestly feel that 
when you have students that graduate and they don't have the skills, the academic skills or social skills to be successful, then, then what do they do? Now, some of them will go on to college, but across the U.S., only 39% of students who graduate from high schools, and that's all high schools, are prepared for college level work in three or, three or four subjects. So that's pretty bad. That means 61% of students are not prepared for college level work. Um, and so what happens is those kids have to take remedial classes in order to get the basic skills that they should have gotten in elementary and, and high school. So for those kids, school becomes, college becomes more expensive. Their parents or whoever's paying for it have to spend more money in order to get them through. It takes them longer to get through because they have to do all of those remedial classes before they're able to even start on the coursework that will get that will help them to graduate. So that 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 starts them off at a disadvantage. Then you have the other kids who don't go to college, but they go out into the world looking for jobs. And then a lot of them wind up in jobs that don't have a lot of upward mobility. So they're not, you know, if they're struggling to, to carve out the life that they want. And then they're having kids and then their kids wind up going to the same underachieving neighborhood schools that, that they went to and, and the cycle just repeats. That's, it's just amazing. Cause it's, it, yeah, it's just going to keep repeating. You got to have something to interfere with it. And, and, uh, and that's kind of where I wanted to go next, because as you talk about this, where they're, you know, they're basically, they're going out to society. They got this, they're being set up for failure and so forth. Now, one of the things that you've experienced is that they're from time to time, they're, people who are brought in and they, they try and do and make changes and such. And uh, you have different leaders and such. And, and, uh, and oftentimes many of those leaders leave <laughs> or the, the programs last for so long and then they leave and depending on what is going to happen. And, and there's a question in here someplace, <laughs> um, but, the, <laughs> but, but let's kind of bring it to this. I mean, how do you feel about the future of, of the, um, school district of Philadelphia with, I mean, cause they've recently had, had a superintendent who um, has done some stuff, but uh, has announced that he's leaving and, and someone else will be coming in. I mean, what, where do you think, what do you think the future is looking like for, for this system? I, I am hopeful because I have seen improvement in a fair number of areas, you know, from between 2001 and, and, and 2000, um, 17, when I went back out, I, I noticed that the schools were um, staffed with teachers who seemed to be less burnt out and more um, determined to do whatever it takes to educate the kids. Because when I went out in 2001, 2002, almost all the teachers I ran into, they just wanted out. They were either burned out or they wanted out um, or they were riding out, riding it out until uh, retirement. They were very, very frustrated. Uh, this time I found that more of the teachers were really just just deeply, deeply committed to trying to see to it that the, the kids would get the best education that they could get under the circumstances of, of the district. And when I say under the circumstances, over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, it, there's there's been a lot. I mean, in 2001, when I first started subbing, the state of Pennsylvania had taken over the school district of Philadelphia because of the low achievement. And what the state did is cut the budget, okay? Three different times, at least. How that was helping, I'm not sure, but um, that's that's what they did. 
And in, in cutting that budget, you know, when you were out in the school district, what you would see is that they didn't have books or the books were old and raggedy. The kids couldn't take the books home. They didn't have technology in the classrooms. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was pretty bad. When I went back out in 2017, I found that although there, there was a difference. Some schools were pretty well outfitted. The special admission schools, the magnet schools, you know, they were very well staffed. They had lots of technology. They had good books. You know, these are the gems. Of, of the school district. Other schools were, were not so lucky. Schools that were further out, closer to the suburbs, they also seem to have better access to technology. And, um, you know, all the kids would have laptops that they had access to, to, to work with. And if they didn't, if all of them didn't have access to one laptop, they at least had some in the classroom that at some period during the day, different groups would rotate in and out and be able to use those laptops. Then, I, then there was another school at the same time, third grade, the one that I went back and forth to, they had a smart board in their room, but it was broken all year long. They didn't have laptops. They were supposed to be split between those two classes. I didn't even know those laptops belonged to that class. Um, and the only time we got to use them was when we were doing the, the standardized testing. So... You know, that was a problem. But, you know, you also had things like, you know, environmentally, there were a lot of problems in the, in the school district that had started to be addressed with the with the superintendent that we have now, but that have not been fully addressed. They've had problems with asbestos. They've had problems with um, lead paint. Um, there have been problems with rodents and mold. One classroom I was in. After I had taken the kids all to lunch and I came back to sit down and eat my lunch, it was quiet in the room. Mice started running across the floor. And I thought, this, this is ridiculous. I had to make noise in order to ensure that the mice didn't run out across the floor. Another school I was in, the teacher I was subbing for was only out for part of the day, but she just warned me, don't put anything in the desk because there are bugs. And she said, and if you can help it, don't put anything in the refrigerator either. So, you know, I mean, it's, that's that's not cool some of this stuff some of this stuff some of this stuff is just poor management you know and not not taking care of the schools the way they need to to, to be taken care of another part of it is just not having the funding needed to address all of this stuff one school i was in for a period during the winter the heat would go off and we wouldn't have heat in the classroom. The kids would be sitting in their jackets and I would be teaching in my jacket. And I would call to complain. I would call to complain. And one day the, the head engineer said to me, listen, this is a directive from the, from the, you know, from the, the, the school district. And we're told to turn the heat off for a period of time during the day. I guess they were trying to save money or whatever. So we just had to deal with being cold. Stuff like that is not cool. But there are other things that I think that the leadership did during this period that work and he refinanced like a hundred million dollars or, or actually a lot of money, a lot of debt that the school district had and he saved a hundred million dollars. When COVID hit, he asked for emergency funding to outfit all of the kids with laptops so that they could work from home. You know, these things were, were great. He invested the, um, the state with enough confidence to return control of the district to Philadelphia. You know, he was very good at, at that type of stuff, but the achievement has still been slow 
you know, the progress there has been slow. So now that he he's done what I guess he was meant to do, and hopefully the next superintendent will be more focused on achievement and will can be less focused on budgeting and funding and we'll be able to start to really make sure that the kids are learning and achieving at a much higher level. The observations that you're making there are so powerful because this is, I mean, that's really, you know, when people lose sight of what it is that you're trying to do when you have the budgets for a school, you know, it's, and the different things that you have to take, um, that you have to work with and do and uh, is just so important. And it's, sometimes you just really <laughs> wonder where some of the thoughts are about uh, where the school's going or the system or the state or, you know, whatever that locality is. So I, you know, one of the things I gotta, I gotta get you to do, cause this is, uh, um, cause you're so right about this. And I, and I got one of the things that we're, that we're kind of touching base on here a little bit is about leadership or lack thereof, or thoughts about how to manage or n- maybe not understanding how to do it. And I gotta, I got to get you to talk briefly about this, which is you were, I, I've actually, I went to schools as a high school principal. I, I marketed myself as a, as a person who fixes schools. All right. So I'm like, you know, I, and if I had it to do all over again, I'd probably still do it, but I don't know, maybe I'd have hair if I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, uh, and so I'd go to these schools and there would be, there's, I knew what the deal was, what something was at least about why I'm going there. One of the schools, um, it's a pretty rough school and, uh, and a lot of violence and so forth. We had to get that under control and focus on academics. Well, one of the things that, that I learned right off the bat was that I had a parent that was banned and that parent met with me and, and she said, I've been banned from this school and I'd like to be able to be unbanned. And so I met with her and that's a whole other story for another, t- another time. You're actually banned from a school from a school can you talk about that briefly sure I you know it was and I have to say that I went to you know I subbed at 67 different schools and and had over 90 different assignments ranging from one day to you know over three months to on again and off again over a year and this is the only school that I was banned from um but just long story short, I walked into the classroom, I sat down, I was looking, you know, at the assignment that they left, and one of the students walked in, she looked at me and she said, oh, I feel sorry for you. That, that's what she said. And I knew that it was going to be a hard day. And it, it was, it was a very hard day. The kids did not, and I wasn't a newbie at this point, so I wasn't a pushover. But it was, it was very hard. The kids didn't listen. They played around. They got up and moved around the classroom. I, I asked for help. They said, oh, we're, you know, I saw them ask a teacher to come and help me. This was during lunch. That teacher never showed up. They said, the teacher said yes, and then just did not show up. And then someone else who was sent to the room, they got there, they looked at the classroom, and then they turned around and left. Because this class was out of control it was a huge class and just really out of control and this was a special admission school too which was kind of shocking that there was this type of behavior because I had been to other special admission schools where it was just wonderful you know and and the kids were great and you know they got to work and 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 did their thing and and that was it 
but these kids were just giving me a really hard way to go. And I was banned because at the end of the day, I went over to the principal and this was a school that was near where I live. So I thought, well, I could sub easily there. You know, I can get there in 10 minutes. You know, I was kind of winding down and I thought, you know, if I maybe get a long-term assignment, um, you know, so I went to talk to the principal and, and I noticed when I would look at the, the, um, the online portal that they always needed subs, always, always, every day. You could sub at that school every day if you wanted to. And so I went to talk to him um, and I tried to, and there was, a, at one point he came down to the classroom and told them to, to chill out and they did for a little bit and then they just went back to doing what they were doing. But, you know, I, I guess we had a conversation. So I, I told him that it was very difficult. It was a, a hard day. And, and I thought maybe if, you know, there were stronger expectations in place about how they're supposed to treat subs, that it would be, that it would be beneficial to, to him and the school. It'd be easier for him to get subs and so on and so forth. And his response was, well, my kids are better than a lot of these kids out here um, in these other schools. And my response was that I had no evidence of that because I had met, I met wonderful kids every day, every day. And because I said I had no evidence of that, he just flipped out, you know, well, if you don't like it here, then don't come back and blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay. And I started to walk toward my car and he followed me and just kept railing on and on about, you know, you know, well, you know what, in fact, I'm going to ban you from this school. I'm going to make sure that you never come, you never come back here. You're never able to come back. And I didn't say anything, just got in my car and rolled up my window and locked it because I was a little uncomfortable with this man following me at this point. Um, and he did. He called and banned me and complained about me. And then they asked me to give a statement. And I gave my statement. They said, OK, well, you can't go back to that school. And I was like, don't worry, I'm not going back to that school. And then I just continued subbing as usual. And, you know, it was it was a problem. It was it was definitely a problem. And I just didn't understand why he thought making excuses for their behavior instead of addressing the behavior was going to benefit them later in life. You know, that's. That's not how the world works. And when you're out in the workplace, you don't get a whole lot of second chances to crawl around on the floor and act like a crazy person and, you know, hit the other students just because it's fun, just because you have a substitute. You know, at the same time, I will say that one of the problems I saw in nearly every classroom was that there was a lot of disruption because of students that had emotional and behavioral issues or who had learning disabilities, which is a, a completely different issue. It's different, you know, students who are acting out just because, you know, they have a substitute teacher and they can, that's one thing. Students who are struggling under the burden of disabilities, that's completely different. And I think that it's one of the, the largest problems that you have in a lot of the large urban school districts that don't have the funds and the resources and the personnel to support those students in the general education environment. And those kids, because they're struggling and they're not getting the support that they need in that environment, you know, it's, it's difficult for them. They start to act out and they act out on a daily basis. They hit their classmates, they argue with the teacher, they challenge, you know, teacher aides, you know, they, you know, they get up and walk in and out. They, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot and that disruption continues day after day, week after week. And then at the end of the year, all of those kids move forward and advance to the next grade together. And it starts all over again 
but how much of their learning have they lost? How much time has the teacher spent trying to manage one or two kids instead of teaching all of the kids what they need to learn that day? So they're losing out on that education. That loss multiplies. By the time they get to middle school, all of the kids are, are behind. By the time they get to high school, some, for some of those kids, it's, it's too late to catch up. And this, this is a huge cycle, and it's a huge, it's a huge problem because if you can fix the funding and, and the resourcing of the schools and, you know, you can clean up the environment, you can make sure there's heat, you can make sure you have books and technology, but if you don't address the classroom disruption and assure that all the kids are getting the support that they need, then you're still not going to get the results that you need. You know, the kids are still not going to graduate with the most com competitive education that, that they can get. And, and so what, one of the things I got to make sure that I say here is, because um, I got a couple things that, uh, you know, you, you just, I mean, we could spend a whole bunch of hours now <laughs> what you just <laughs> said. And um, why do you think that too many schools just are unable to take accountability for control of their classrooms? I mean, why, why do you think that this, they struggle with this? You know, I will say that some of the schools that I have been in are just better managed, period. You know, some principals are better. Some teachers are better. You know, they have a, just a better system in place. At the same time, there is a federal law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which dictates that all children with disabilities, whether those disabilities are disruptive or not, are to be educated in the general classroom setting and that they are to receive support services in that setting. And that's challenging for a lot of schools, not just schools in inner cities, but, you know, in the suburbs, in rural areas, that that is a challenging model to support. But in large urban school districts that are historically underfunded, they don't have the resources to be able to help all of those kids in that dispersed manner. It's expensive. But they have to. In fact, Pennsylvania was called out by the Department of Education in 2002, I think, as the seventh slowest state to comply and to incorporate children with disabilities into the general education setting. And then there was a lawsuit. And then the lawsuit was settled and PA agreed to incorporate, you know, all the children with disabilities into the classrooms more quickly. So... You know, if you have a, a federal law that's dictating this and, and a law that says that those children can only be removed if they bring in guns, drugs, bombs, or if they do serious bodily injury to a teacher or another child, you know, in, in that sense, the, the hands are tied. If you don't have the resources to make this work in, in that structure, in that model, then what do you do? That's a that's a great question because if your if your hands are tied like that, then you you you, you know you you basically got to decide which you know which uh, what I want to say is which side of the fence you're on. Are you going to fight a battle that says we got to do something better because it's possible that you may not win at all, right? <laughs> or do you ignore it? In which case you're going to chase off kids. I mean, you're going to have kids who are, have problems that get hurt, get injured, and, uh, yeah. and uh, kids who don't get a chance to learn what they should because the class is disrupted. 
um, and adults who might maybe have experienced some of the same sort of things. And, you know, it's the, you know, and that's where kind of coming back almost full circle here to the idea of management or leadership or the Mm -hmm. idea of trying to figure out how to address these things. Because if you only have limited funding, then where gets your priority, you know, where's your priority go to? Are you putting it into the right areas? I I think this is just uh, this point that you're bringing is, uh, is huge and has to be addressed. It does. And it has to be addressed at the legislative level. Um, because they, they need to really take a look at idea and look at those mandates and try to figure out how they can give the local school districts and local schools a little more authority over determining which kids um, would benefit more from being in the general ed environment and which kids you know need a different type of structure for their classroom. I mean, it's, it's not all kids with disabilities that can't be successful in the the gen ed setting some of them do fantastic you know they're at the tops of their classes they're thriving they're doing great but there have been a lot of studies that show that children that have emotional behavioral issues and some of them that have learning disabilities they they do better they are more successful in smaller classroom settings with teachers and aides that have specialized skills to support their needs and helping them earlier in life sets them up for greater success later in life. And I think that what we need to do is figure out how do we support all of the kids? I, I love it. That's so powerful. And I, I can't thank you enough for, for looking at that and addressing it because it, it, it really is. And those smaller group settings, I mean, I've had kids tell me that uh, they like it so much better because they don't have, and they don't use the word stimulation, but they use their own words, but that's really what they're talking about. They don't have all this yeah. stimulation that takes them away from focusing on what they should be focusing on. And uh, um, plus having the experts who, you know, they've been trained to work with them and their behaviors is so powerful in itself. Um, good stuff. I, I got to ask, you know, as, as we're getting closer to finishing up, this all kind of brings me to this because, you know, what do you think can be done to retain and recruit good teachers? I mean, and by the way, what's also in there is, you know, also the thought of treating subs better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll address that second, that second question first. You know, I think for substitute teachers, the main thing is to ensure that they have, you know, some, a, a thorough training before they go in, you know, it's, it's better in Philadelphia now, now all of it is online and there's more of it, but there, you know, and then they have more courses available as it goes on. So it's very different than that initial five hours of training that just kind of basically gave you the basics. Um, so I, I think that's important. And then the other thing is, is just to maybe buddy them up with someone when they come in. You know, one of the best assignments I had was with a kindergarten class, um, you know, in, in a Philadelphia school that was closer to the suburbs. And the kindergarten teacher was my partner and she just made sure that I was on track. She made sure I had the lesson plans. She would print out um, worksheets for me. She would help me find books in the classroom, whatever it is that I needed, you know, but it wasn't just her. It was also um, like the, I can't remember what the title is, but the person that kind of supervises the teachers and, you know, helps them. She's like a coach for all of the different teachers in the school. You know, she was the first person that ever actually sat in the classroom with me, watched me teach and then gave me feedback you know, which was extraordinarily helpful. She helped me do report cards, you know, she, she did a, a lot of different things. And, you know, 
subs need that support in order to be successful because we don't know what we're doing. You know, that that's just the honest truth. We don't know what we're doing and what we know is what we learn from the other teachers around us. So I, you know, many, many thanks to all the teachers that, that did help me because I wouldn't have made it through that journey with without them. But I did go into some schools where there was no help forthcoming from anyone. Um, so that's my comment on the subs. In terms of other teachers, I, I think that I ran into a lot of new teachers who were really disillusioned and upset on a, a daily basis. You know, it was it was weird because people would just talk to me. They would talk to me at lunch. They would talk to me in the halls. They would just see me and, and they would just start spilling their, their guts, you know, and new teachers in particular, they need to be prepared before they get out there, especially if they're going into, you know, if you're going to a private school that's well-resourced and, and, and well-run and so on and so forth, that's, that's one situation, you know, and it's just your, your dream to work with kids and to teach them, and, and that's lovely. But when you're going into another type of situation where, you know, you're dealing on a daily basis with uh, children who have um, disorders and, and emotional issues and behavioral issues, where the school is under-resourced, where there's not enough personnel, where you have teachers that are um, in and out, which causes a burden on all the other teachers because then they have to give up their prep time in order to cover somebody else's class. Um, you know, they need to they need to be trained, they need to be prepared, they need time out in the field before and I know they get all of this, but too many of them were, were in shock. And I actually interviewed a psychologist, one of the psychologists that I interviewed in the book. And she talked about how so many teachers came to her upset and not knowing how to deal with some of the children and um, and the amount of time it was taking away from the general teaching of the class. And you know, her response was this is the job. You have to learn to incorporate this aspect of the job into what you're doing as a teacher. Um, so, you know, they, they need to understand that. They need to know that. And I think that, you know, there are young people out there who are up for a big challenge. You know, there, there really are. You look, there are people that from the United States that just went to Ukraine to help out with the war. There are people who are up for a big challenge. And if they understand how much they're needed and how impactful um, a teacher can be for students, I think that a lot of them will be more prepared to go out there and meet the challenges head on, you know, versus people who may be getting into teaching because it's convenient or because that's what everybody else in their family does. Um, you know, and then again, they need a buddy. They need a buddy when they, they, they get into that school, someone who's going to serve as a mentor on a daily basis because it's hard. Teaching is very, very hard. I think right now you've got this huge audience going, you got that right. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, oh, that's... So powerful what you're talking about. And I'm, you know, it's this is uh, from getting that support to the giving them ideas, and, and and sometimes what you almost need, especially as a brand new teacher, is to be able to experience the classroom, then be pulled back out again, so that then okay, so now let's talk about how you deal with some of those things you experienced, and then and then go back back in, and you know, if there's any number of levels, even if it's just 
somebody to vent to who won't try and solve your problems, but instead will just let you <laughs> talk. Yes. I mean, there's, there's any number of those types of uh, um, support mechanisms that I think sometimes our adults, well-meaning, don't understand how much it's needed um, yeah. to, uh, to keep them saying, you know, I'll come back again next year. And uh, yeah, but uh, that's so important. It's so important. I've just met or heard of too many new teachers um, who gave it up. They just they just quit. So it's so frustrating and sad at the same time to, to know that that's what's happened. I, I agree with you. I've had colleagues who, you know, after I had one who was an amazing teacher who went to selling insurance. And I said, you're, mm. you're going to make a difference selling that insurance. That's right. By the way, anyone who sells insurance who's listening to me, I'm, not that there's anything wrong with that, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I actually had a, a teacher say to me, you know, one of the teachers that um, I spent three weeks with, we were co-teaching a, a kindergarten class and um, I don't think that she was necessarily the best representative of the of the teaching community and she was doing her student teaching and on the verge of being certified and and she said to me well you know I became a teacher because you know I never had summers off before and that's what I wanted and I'm thinking that's not the right reason you know and then she said I don't think I'm going to stick with this it's too hard I think I'm going to go to nursing school and I thought well, maybe you shouldn't stick with teaching, but, and then I thought, I don't think nursing is going to be easy either. That's another really tough profession, but you know, what can you say to folks? And then there were other teachers I met, one who told me that she had had a stroke, a mini stroke, and another one who said she felt like she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown, you know, because of, you know, trying to manage her class. And, and I said, well, why are you still teaching? And both of them said, I love the kids. I love kids. This is what I've always wanted to do. So I just have to figure out a way to make it work. So you have, you know, the, the teachers run the game. You have teachers who are just extraordinarily dedicated, you know, to their own detriment. And then you have other, other people who are there for, you know, summers off. It's so crazy because first of all, you want to say that one teacher, what, what? What shows have you been watching or whatever? I know. Because, I mean, and then to say that, oh, nursing will be better. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, that's uh, <laughs> interesting thoughts there. But I, yeah, it's I do. Ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And, and I've had colleagues that are amazing that give up their Saturdays so that they could spend time to bring kids together. And they've used their own money to buy books um, so that they're reading with the kids to help build their vocabulary and stuff like this at a coffee shop on a Saturday, you know, and it's, yeah. and then you have others who they wouldn't in a million years ever even dawn on them that they could do something different like that to try and help the kids build their uh, vocabulary understanding. Just, just amazing. Uh, Clayvon, it, it, I got to tell you, this has been awesome. And I could talk to you for, for hours on end, but I, I know I got to let you go here at some point. And if someone wanted to find out more, connect with you, and purchase your book, Sub, Inside the Notorious School District of Philadelphia, where would you send them? Um, you can find Sub pretty much anywhere. It's in hardback, paperback, and ebook format. Uh, you can get it on Amazon.com. You can get it on BarnesandNoble.com, Walmart.com. Um, you can get it in Apple iBooks. Um, you can get it from independent booksellers. You know, so it's, you know, it's pretty readily available. Um, I, you know, I have a Facebook page where you can reach out to me. It's called Sub Inside the Notorious School District of Philadelphia, which is really long, but um, that's what we were able to get. So that's what we got. So you can reach me there. There's also a website, 
um, for the book uh, at uh, angelwalk.biz, which is the publisher. And um, you can reach out there and, and reach me through the email there. And that will also tell you more about Sub. And I think there's a sample chapter there. Um, and just a little bit more about me if, if you're interested in me. But I mean, I'm truly beside the point. It's really more about the kids and the system and, and how we can make it better. Very cool. And I'll have that information in the show notes so that people can easily find it. And I got two last questions I want to ask you. And the first one goes like this. If you had a chance to talk with an audience of school system superintendents about your book, Sub, Inside the Notorious School District of Philadelphia, what is something that you would want them to remember? Honestly, the, for me, the most important thing is trying to figure out a solution for how to manage the disruption in, in the classrooms on a daily basis. I think that that, you know, is, is such a huge, huge problem. Um, and, and just being ready to, I would hope that they, they are ready. Cause I, I don't know if they are or not. I mean, I know that they're probably even more familiar with this than I am, but um, just, just being ready to, to kind of figure out how you're going to work around the mandates that tell you that students with disruptive disabilities should be in the general ed setting and to be aware of the impact that it's having on all of the students, not just on, on those students who are struggling with the, with the disorders. So I, I think that that would be the, the main thing. Because I, like I said, I, I think that things are getting better. I think that there's so many minds concentrated on education in America. Um, I do feel like things will get better and can get better across the board. But I do feel like that is a, a particular component that a lot of people don't necessarily talk about out, outside of the schools. They don't talk about the difficulties in managing the, the classroom when you have that situation or the disruption or the, the learning loss that results from, from having one or two students in a classroom who, um, you know, just, just can't seem to sort of, you know, calm down and focus on the work and get their work done and let the other kids get their work done. So I think that's the most important. That's, that's the one thing that I think, you know, how, how do you address that? I know at one point they talked about starting, um, d creating a new school, a hundred million dollar facility that would be for students that needed additional support, like uh, uh, um, a high support school for, for children with, you know, severe emotional behavioral disabilities and inclusion advocates came out and said, no, you're trying to segregate these students, you know, you're trying to separate them from all the other students. And basically they, they wound up squashing the, the project. And so, you know, I, which I think is problematic because I think it would have been, I would think it would have been helpful to those students. So powerful. Thank you for sharing. And the last question goes like this. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? You know, I actually have many teachers that 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 made a, a huge impact on me. But uh, the one teacher that I will never, ever forget was Kathy Pickens Harris, who was my fifth grade teacher. And um, when I went, I was in a private school and I switched over in third grade to a Catholic school. And um, 
I went to like this private Catholic Montessori school. So, you know, it was very non-traditional in terms of how they approach things. And then I went to a Catholic school, which was very structured. And they put me in the third group for, you know, Catholic school at that point. And I think still they're tracked, track one, track two, track three. And they put me in track three. And, you know, and I was reading stuff like C, you know, C spot run and so on and so forth like that. And I had been reading chapter books at the other school. So when my mother found out, she saw one of my books and she went up to the school and she asked why I was, why I was in track three. And my teacher said, well, you know, she doesn't read, you know, she can't read. And my mother said, she can read. No, she doesn't. When we read, she sits and looks out the window and but I would read the book and then I would look out the window because it was like, I could read it pretty quickly. So she asked the principal, uh, sister Helen to test me and they tested me and they found out that I was reading on a 12th grade level. So it didn't make sense for me to be in track three and sister Helen had said, okay, we're going to put her in track one. And, but the teacher just, for some reason, she wouldn't do it. She put me in track two. And I didn't complain because I noticed that she started being mean to me after my mother came up to the school and complained. And at least I had better stories to read. So I figured, okay, I'll just stay in track two and I won't say anything. And then I was in track two for fourth grade. And when I got to fifth grade, um, Miss Pickens noticed that I was reading a lot better than, um, than track two. And she felt that I could handle the work in track one. And she spoke with my mother and they agreed that I was going to move over to track one. And the next day I came in, she didn't tell me to go over there. So I went to track two and she said, Clavon, what are you doing? I told you you're supposed to go over to this group over here. And I got up and I went over to the other group and it was much more interesting for me. And I got to read better books and she became my friend. Like that was the first time I was introduced to the concept of a teacher as a friend you know, and we stayed in touch after I left fifth grade and she left the school. She actually left and went to another school, but she would still call and check in on me. She actually came and picked me up and she would take me to the movies or take me to dinner. You know, she was just wonderful. That's so awesome. So cool. Clavon, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for sharing your book, Sub, Inside the Notorious School District of Philadelphia. Powerful lessons, powerful book, and I'm wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much for having me on, Steve. I really appreciate it. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.